Everybody, if you're in a nine to five job and you want to leave, we need an exit date. Schedule it to make it real. So I chose this date, put it on a post-it note, put it on a mirror where I saw it every day. And when I saw it, I would ask the question, what do I need to do today to move me closer to that date? Welcome back everyone to another episode of the Korean... Wait, hold on. Let's start that again. Welcome everyone to the Are You Ready podcast with Joanne Molinaro, where we talk about how to get ready for a more purposeful and empowered life. That's right. With the relaunch of this started mostly by accident podcast, I decided to change the name. I'm not going to dive into a deep explanation of what I mean by are you ready? Because I think it'll be readily apparent soon enough. On this week's episode, we talk about the last straw. What was that thing that finally nudged you over the edge that set you on a path that you might not have otherwise discovered? We speak with Amy Porterfield, a multi-million dollar entrepreneur, author, podcaster, and according to Forbes, a badass glass ceiling breaker. Amy tells us about her own last straw, how it catapulted her to calendar the exit date from her day job and start laying the foundation to her empire. Today's episode may not break the camel's back like that final straw sometimes does, but it's guaranteed to have you asking questions, the answers to which might change your life. So, without further ado, are you ready? Can you remember the last time you said out loud or to yourself, that's the last straw? I said it last night when I opened the dishwasher. Anthony had loaded it in his characteristically haphazard way, cups strewn all over the top drawer, plates lodged into random corners of the lower tray. Despite years of trying to model efficient use of the dishwasher by placing all the cups and mugs on one side, all the small bowls on the other, and sticking all the plates neatly in one predictable row on the bottom, my husband simply wasn't taking the hint. So as I began to reorganize all the cups and mugs, I said out loud, okay, that's the last straw. Babe, we need to discuss how to properly load the dishwasher. Now, I know that's not what you were thinking when you decided to listen to this week's podcast episode, but it's 100% truthful and dare I say, relatable. I recently had the opportunity to sit down with Amy Porterfield. Amy, like myself, used to work a nine to five job, a very good one for a very famous person, but gave it all up to start her own business. One of the most inspiring things about her story was her last straw. Quote, it all blew up in my face two years ago when I'd just gotten off a plane after attending a marketing conference. One of my worst clients called me while I was on the tarmac trying to juggle my suitcase, cell phone, and coffee cup. Between the roar of airplane engines and propellers flapping, I could only hear every other word of him viciously barking at me. The webinar went horrible today. Where are you, Amy? This will never happen again. It was the last straw. 
I was shaking with dread. My face was hot, and as I gripped the phone against my ear, something inside of me just snapped. I was so done playing small and letting others hold me back. You got that right, I thought. This will never happen again. Shortly after that, I fired all of my consulting clients and started building my current business. And that is a quote from Forbes. I'll include a link to that in the show notes below. Today, Amy runs a multi-million dollar digital course business, a successful podcast, and recently became an author, all because of that last straw. David Goggins has an entire chapter on haters in his new book, Never Finished, Unshackle Your Mind and Win the War Within. In it, he describes how he literally made a mixtape of himself reading hateful comments. He calls it his mixtape of haters, and he uses it to motivate himself, to juice up the I'll show you engine. Honestly, that doesn't work for me most of the time, and that may not work for you. I'm a people pleaser. I literally get high, like I can feel my body like thrumming when I know I've pleased someone. Conversely, I feel physically ill when I know I've disappointed someone I care about. In that vein, I tend to internalize criticism and even abuse, asking myself, what did I do wrong to deserve being treated like this? Because it's obviously my fault. The concept of the last straw, though, presupposes a rock bottom, that place you only hit on occasion where there's nowhere to go but up, or in my case, out. Recently, someone asked me what the biggest pivot point was in my own life, and I was tempted to talk about my own transition from corporate life to entrepreneurship, but it wouldn't have been an honest answer. While moving from law to small business was indeed a massive pivot, it was by no means the biggest one. As I've talked about in prior podcast episodes, we can often trick ourselves into staying in toxic relationships or jobs because we don't want the dreaded Q word, quitter, attached to our names. I believed that suffering for suffering's sake was a testament to my strength and commitment. And therefore, despite fighting with my ex-husband nearly once a week for a decade, I would tell myself, well, I'm strong enough to handle his temper. Well, every couple goes through what we're going through. Everything is my fault. These fights are bringing us closer together, or I can't live without him. But everyone has a last straw. Mine fell on a gorgeous spring day back in 2011. Chicago has a dwindling supply of perfect days where it's neither hot nor humid, so we decided to drive to the local park in Arlington Heights. We weren't the only ones who wanted to take advantage of this gorgeous weather. The park is crawling with kids on their rollerblades and bikes, parents sitting in their foldable chairs with their books in hands, unleashed dogs rolling around in soft green grass. We began strolling on the sidewalk that rings the park. Despite the picture-perfect day, within a few minutes, we are embroiled in a heated argument about his job, or to put it more accurately, his lack of one. By the time we get back to the car, he's screaming at me, and it doesn't stop even as I climb into the seat, plug my ears, 
and start to cry. I feel like I'm drowning, so I decide to walk home. Before he switches on the ignition, I get out of the car and began putting one flip-flop in front of the other, and I have only the foggiest idea of how to get home, but I'd rather get lost than stay one more second in that car. All of a sudden, someone is honking at me. And not the polite beep-beep, but long, blaring honks. The kind that usually inspires a nasty bout of road rage. I turn around, and there he is, rolling down the window and screaming. Get back in the car, you bitch! You think you can do this to me? The entire park grows still. All eyes on me as if a spotlight has materialized out of the blue to place me at center stage. Behind his car, I spy a family of three on their bicycles. A father and his two daughters literally hit their brakes about 10 feet from me, now a part of my captive audience. They're wearing helmets, I notice. And I think to myself, yes, because that is what a responsible father would do. He would make his little girls wear helmets for a bike ride to the park. I stare back at all of them, and then just at him, because in that moment, I could actually hear the thoughts climbing out of this very responsible father's helmeted head. You're the high-powered lawyer? What a fake. No way do I want my daughters growing up to be like you. For me, it wasn't a mixtape of my haters or hater that ultimately propelled me to leave so I could prove him wrong. My last straw was that father on his bicycle. The horror and shame and disgust and pity so openly painted on a stranger's face that made the dissonance between outside Joanne and inside Joanne intolerable. At the office, they called me the pit bull. Clients relied on me not just for counsel, but for zealous advocacy. I was paid the big bucks to go for the jugular wherever and whenever it became vulnerable to me. I looked the part too. I had expensive Italian shoes, a closet full of tailored suits, and a handbag collection that made my mom ask me about my will and testament. But behind the closed doors of our home, I let this one person scream at me until I cried. And too many times, this high-powered attorney could be found on her knees, begging him for forgiveness. I felt to my core that I'd been outed as a sham. I would have to either quit my job as a lawyer or quit being his wife. It didn't matter as much to me which path. I chose only that the path I walked was a truthful one. I did quit. And thank God I did. What's your last straw? And what does it say about the path you're on today? Well, thank you so much for coming all the way out here to Agora Hills. Even though you were sort of in the SoCal area, Agora Hills is is a bit of a hike. <laughs> it's a little out there and I've never even been here before. And I love that it's cozy and that we're, we're at your kitchen table. And we get to talk like this. This this feels right. Oh, that's amazing. What is it like in your own home? Because I know you do a lot of your work, if not most of your work from your own. Are you working off the kitchen table? 
I was for many, many years. I worked off the kitchen table and then I moved a little desk into our bedroom. I had this little condo in Carlsbad and we moved a little desk into the bedroom because the kitchen table was way too busy. I have a stepson and he was young at the time, mm. so he was running around. But these days, 14 years in, I have a studio in my house and it has all the equipment set up, the lighting, the mics, everything I've ever wanted that I never absolutely had for many years. And I could click a button and I can go live. And that feels amazing to me because then there's no excuses. That sounds like heaven. It, it is heaven. It's, it's It was a long time in the making, but it's one of my most favorite things. Yeah. Well, I want to talk a lot about many of your favorite things as well as some of your not favorite things. Yes. But before we get to that, I wanted to start sort of in the beginning. I know in an interview that you had done, you talked about your parents. And at the very outset, at first blush, it sounds sort of like your everyday 1950s sitcom. Yes. <laughs> your father was a firefighter. Is that right? And I don't think your mom was a stay-at-home mom. She did work, though, right? She was a hairstylist, but for a big chunk of time, she did stay at home. And it's so interesting because when you look at that, you're thinking, well, how did this woman become this super mega million dollar mogul lady who's running multiple businesses, not just one, on her own, when it sounds, like I said at first blush, that you came from a fairly traditional background? I really did. I always say that my family was blue collar to the bone. And my dad worked two jobs. So he's a firefighter. And then on his days off, he would do air conditioning and heating to make extra money. And my mom was home a lot of the time. And never once did I hear the word entrepreneur in my household. It was never even on my radar. But it's funny because I remember vividly, I'd be on the ground playing Barbies with my sister. I have one sister, a little older. And my dad would come in and it was so odd. We were very young and he'd say, find a way to be your own boss. When you girls grow up, find a way to be your own boss. He was never his own boss. So it's really interesting that he would say that. We would be like, yeah, yeah, dad, whatever. We're playing with Barbies. But fast forward to my life now, and that was always in my ear. I didn't really realize it till I got older and was being my own boss. But it is something that he just instilled in us from a young age. Why do you think that was an important lesson for him to impart to his daughters? I think, you know, being a firefighter all his life, he knew that he was always under somebody else's command. He, he mm. was not calling the shots. Although he would rise up the ranks, he was a captain, so he got to be a leader. He always had a boss. He always was tied to somebody else's agenda. And so much of his life was spent at work. And I think the fact that he knows he missed a lot of our childhood, mm. I think that's the part that he wanted freedom to work when he wanted, where he wanted, how he wanted. He absolutely didn't have that. So I think it was coming from a place of, I don't have this, but I see my two daughters capable of creating something different. It must have come from that. Mm. So when your dad would say that to you, hey girls, make sure that you're your own boss, you answer to you, what was your response? You would literally not even pay attention. Like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I had no idea what he meant at the time. And so it was such a weird comment to make to two little girls. But I think when we got older, he would say, the sky's the limit. When, when you are your own boss, you can make as much money as you want. You could do any kind of work that you want. So when we got older, he would talk about it even more. And he always, he worked so hard, but there was always going to be a limit to how much money he could make. Mm -hmm. And I think he knew that as well. He had to take a second job because being a firefighter didn't pay all the bills. 
So I, I know he didn't want that for us. He didn't want us to work our lives away like that. So I think that was a big part of it. And where did you guys grow up? We grew up in Southern California, Orange County area. And my sister's still there and she is a school teacher. So she took a very different route than I have. She looks at my life and it seems crazy and wild to her. She wouldn't want what I have. Not everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. So we're very different where she has a very stable, very beautiful life with her husband and her kids, but very different than the life I chose. When was it then, if you can pinpoint like growing up, that you started on this path. I mean, it's hard to even describe it that way because I feel like your path, you know, maybe in retrospect, yeah, it's as straight as an arrow. You went from point A to point Z, right? But I feel like in reading your book and looking into your story more, there was a lot of zigzagging involved. When do you think in your childhood, you know, growing up as a young person, you said, hey, this is what I want to be when I grow up. And what was it that you wanted to be when you grew up? You know, I've been asked this question a lot now since the book came out, and I don't remember ever having a huge desire to be anything. Mm -hmm. And I feel embarrassed to tell you that because this guy was interviewing me a few weeks ago and he was like, tell me about your passions when you were little and what did you want to grow, grow up to be and what were you interested in? I didn't have a lot of that. And it feels weird to say that. I always said I was going to be a flight attendant because my mom told me that would be a great job for me. So I told everyone I was going to be a flight attendant. And then I realized to be a flight attendant, you can't have motion sickness. And I do like severely. And I asked her one day, why did you say for me to be a flight attendant? She said, because I never really got to explore the world and I wanted that for you. So here I was like literally trying to live my mom's dream and go after that. But I always knew I wanted to be a leader. So I was the captain of my cheerleading team. I like to be on student council. I like to be in charge. So I always had a leader mentality in me, but I never aspired to, I never really said like, this is what I'm going to do when I grow up. I don't know why I didn't have that. Well, I don't think that's something to be embarrassed about, although I understand why you might be, especially when people are constantly asking yeah, you that question. You're like, you're this answer. super successful lady. Like, when did it all begin? Like, I, I, I understand that pressure, but I would hazard a guess that many people relate to that, yeah. that feeling of like, well, actually, I had no idea what I wanted to be. And, and I think that a lot of us are sort of receptacles for our parents. They sort of just drop into us their oh. dreams and their hopes, and we just kind of adopt them because we, we're empty at that time. We don't know. We're, that's what we are. We're blank slates. And so it's very easy for us to say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, flight attendant, that sounds amazing. That's going to be my dream. And then somewhere along the line, you either say, yeah, that was an excellent dream to have or... Actually, that is like totally not for me and not really what I wanted at all. So I think that's probably, like I said, very relatable to a lot of people. And I also don't think that there's anything wrong with it whatsoever. I mean, obviously you are where you are, notwithstanding all of that. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I've never admitted that like, ooh, it feels weird to say I never had like huge passions when I was growing up. But I think there are some people that probably needed to hear that. Like They're like, I can totally relate to that. You know, I remember when my husband and I were on our first date, first or second date. I think it was our first date. And as you know, he introduced himself earlier today, he's a concert pianist and he's like super accomplished. I mean, he's won one of the most important awards in music that exists, right? Wow. He has a, you know, multiple albums. He's got an incredible career as a concertizer. And when I first went on this date with him, I was 
like, man, this guy's so passionate about music. I mean, he could, you know, jump ropes around me when he's talking about Bach and Beethoven and Mozart and Brahms. And I barely even know who those dudes are, you know. And I'm like, you know, I like music, but I'm not passionate about it. And I really have to sit there and think and ask myself, what the freak am I passionate about? I'm not passionate about anything, you know, like I have a job but I'm not passionate about it. I love my family. I guess I'm passionate about that. But there wasn't really anything that stuck out to me as a passion. And I think so, again, going back to your growing up and trying to figure out, like, what is it that I want to do when I grow up? A lot of people don't find out what they're passionate about until they're, like, in their 40s or 50s. Okay, amen to that. And I really do believe that is my story. It took a long time for me to figure out what I really love to do. And I felt the same way about when I looked at people with beautiful lives and passions and thinking, what is wrong with me? I just might have been a late bloomer. <laughs> Sometimes the late bloomers are the most beautiful. That's so true. <laughs> I agree. So, all right. You think you might be a flight attendant. Right. You might be into that. You know that you like leadership opportunities. What did you study in college? Communications. So I, I always knew I'd probably be in something with media or PR or marketing of some sort. And so I started to lean toward that. And when I got out of college, I started taking different jobs. Like if you look at my job history, it's all over the place from nonprofit to publishing to Harley Davidson to Tony Robbins. Like it was very weird and lots of turns. And that was me trying to find my way. Absolutely. Someone was asking me in another interview, take me through all the jobs. And I'm like, oh my God, that must sound crazy. These jobs don't even relate to one another. But I was really just trying to find my way. And I think I finally found my way when I ended up at Tony Robbins. And the reason for that is it was a company that was focused on inspiring and educating and empowering and teaching. And the teaching part really spoke to me. I didn't actually get an opportunity to teach when I was there, but I watched Tony on stage. I watched what he did. I knew how it changed lives. And I loved creating content. That was my job. I was the director of content development. So I got to create content that he did on stage. And that's when I just fell in love with the ability to create he called them technologies, but create content, framework, processes, put them out into the world and see them come alive through other people's eyes. I was hooked and I wanted more of that. So that was the first time that I found my footing, but wow, it took a while. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it did. I guess one of the things that you talk about in your book that I think is incredibly important, but also, you know, maybe sadly, very relatable is the fact that even when you were at Tony Robbins and you were a student, all of the experts, the teachers at that time, they were all men, yes. right? And I'm guessing that many of the students were probably mostly men. Yes. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, I think that there were probably a lot of women who didn't even have the gumption to think they could be in a classroom that talks about entrepreneurship and being your own boss. So what was it like being in a classroom full of only male teachers knowing that you wanted to be a woman entrepreneur, your own boss? You know, it was interesting because when I talk to some of my friends, let's say if I talk to women of color and they'll say, when I was growing up, I didn't see anyone that looked like me doing what I wanted to do. And I would hear that and think, okay, so I had a very different experience than those women 
But it was like that in the sense that I looked around, all these men were doing these amazing things. And the first thought was, maybe there's not a place for me here. Maybe I shouldn't be in this world. In that case, it was business owners, online marketers, online business owners, essentially. And I couldn't see myself there. However, they had so much freedom. It was that word freedom that just stuck with me. They would talk about their businesses and they would be calling the shots. They could do what they wanted, when they wanted, how they wanted. They were in charge. They got to create things from scratch. And I wanted that. And I never even knew I wanted that. I wanted it more than ever when I realized it was possible. So I have to say, I, I, even though I didn't see myself at that table, I didn't see myself in all of these men, there was something in me that thought, there's got to be women doing this. There's got to be a place for me. And so then I started to look for it. And I did find it. This was 14 years ago. So there weren't as many women content creators, influencers, business owners, but there were a few. And the beautiful thing is many of them are still my friends mm. today because I think women, they were just like, come in, you're invited. There's room at the table for you. That was a special time for sure. I have so many questions about that because that raises so many issues. But I know exactly what you're talking about when you look around the room and you don't see anyone like you. And your first question is, maybe I don't belong here. When I used to go into court, I, I mean, nine out of 10 times, I was the only woman. And, I, and, and this is still, I mean, this is like a few years ago. I'm not talking about 14 years ago, even a few years ago, particularly in federal court or bankruptcy court. I'm oftentimes one, maybe two women in there and everyone else is a man. Sometimes the judge is a woman. Actually, it's more frequently that the only other woman in the, in the courtroom is the judge. But it's, it's oftentimes unnerving to look around and say, okay, maybe I, I just don't have what it takes. As in, I was born with the wrong parts, literally, to be in this room. But Ultimately, I quickly learned that now I just need to take what I have and figure out how to use my strengths to leverage them to create a successful practice. How much of that kind of goes into what you've developed, you know, in terms of your business, in terms of becoming your own boss, saying, all right, I'm going to have this lingering doubt of, okay, do I belong here? I'm going to shelve that. And instead, I'm going to look at all of the assets that I can bring to this, leverage those to create something completely unique. That's exactly what it looked like for me, for sure. But the interesting part of that is I thought, okay, I love to teach. I love to create content. I know online marketing well. I had done it in my business or in the companies I work for. So I started to take that and put that out into the world. But I started to do it like the men. Mm. And I've been called out for this where people would say, your style is very masculine. Or in my industry, we call them the bro marketers. So it's like, oh, you're marketing like the bros. And at first I was like, I, I knew it wasn't a compliment. No one would say that as a compliment. But I did, I learned so much from these men that I would take my own talents and weave them in, but it would look a lot like how they were doing it. And that's how I did my business for years and then looked around and thought, I don't even know who I am. Like, this is not how I want to market. I don't like how I'm putting my message out there. It's working. That's the worst part about it. I'm making lots of money from it and I'm making an impact, but I don't even know who I am. Mm -hmm. So along the journey of becoming an entrepreneur, I had to find myself 
And the people say that if you want to grow personally, become an entrepreneur, because there's no bigger personal growth than figuring out how to be your own boss and navigating that. And that's really what I went through. So, but it looked a lot like the guys in the beginning. Mm, mm. You talk about the women that sort of took you in, maybe, you know, brought you under their fold and said, hey, we're going to support you. We're going to mentor you. I actually wanted to talk about something that I read. It was, I think, an instance in your you know, your trajectory and your path that wasn't as pleasant. And it was an encounter, I think, with somebody who basically took you to task for not being at a meeting that you weren't even supposed to be at. And then also said, you're, you're never going to be a marketer, or at least that's what they implied. That was one of the toughest times. It was around the time that I was thinking I wanted to be my own boss. I wanted to start a business. It was in the year of my still at my nine to five job, but knowing in a year I'm leaving. And this is at at Tony Robbins. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Tony was going to be on the Today Show. And long story short, there was this woman that was managing him throughout. What's unique about Tony is he prepares for everything, everything. Like when you were saying you prepare like it's a deposition, I saw like Tony in that where everything he takes very seriously and he puts his heart and soul into it. So he's preparing for the Today Show. And he wants things like, not only what are they going to talk about, tell me about the host. Tell me about the other guests that are coming on as well. He wants the whole experience. So my department is responsible for putting together a binder of all these details. Well, the woman who was supporting him wasn't able to continue to support. She had a family emergency. So I was put in at the very last minute. So when I'm working all, all of this, I get a call within five minutes from this woman that was higher up than me in my nine to five job. And she's like, where is all the information? I said, I just jumped in. I need some extra time. And throughout the conversation, she got frustrated with me and something about marketing came up. And that's when she said, Amy, you are not a marketer. And I, it was so surreal because in that moment I thought everything I want to do, I want to be a marketer. I want to build a business around marketing. In that instance, I thought I can't do it. Like one woman who hardly even knew me told me I wasn't a marketer and I instantly believed her. You're right. Who am I to be doing this? Little did she know I was trying to leave the company and start my own thing. But I let that be the truth for a moment. I, I I carried it with me for years. Why? Why do you think you allowed that to be your truth, even for a second? Even for a second. Because I already believed that I didn't have what it took to, to make this work. I didn't necessarily believe in myself. Now, people will say, if you didn't believe in yourself, how did you get to where you are today? And I always come back to, I didn't believe that I could do it. However, my why was really clear and strong. I didn't want to work for anybody ever again for the rest of my life. I didn't want to be told what to do, when to do it, or how to do it. I didn't want to be on someone else's time or someone else's dime. I knew that to my core. So even though I had no proof that I could make it as a business owner, I knew what I wanted. And I, the days that my doubts and worries knock me to the ground, my why always pick me back up. That's literally how I'm sitting here today with you. But there were many moments I did not believe in myself. So here's the great part though. I didn't believe in myself yet, but I chose courage over confidence. And I believe in this wholeheartedly. Confidence is I have a track record. I've done really well in these areas. I think I could do this too. I had zero confidence, but I did have courage, which is that leap of faith. Let's just see where this goes. I could crash and burn and I'm going to have to figure that out when I get there, but let's just see because I want it bad enough. 
So the courage is what got me there. When you're talking about the strength of your why, like knowing to your core, I never want to work for anyone else again. I'm going to answer to me. And we talked about how that may have started with your father when you were very, very young. But was there a point in your career, whether it was at Harley Davidson at, you know, with Mr. Robbins or somewhere else where that became crystal clear to you? This is the last straw. I'm done here. I'm not going to be subjecting myself to this again. Ooh, that's such a great question. I would say it was that moment that that woman told me I wasn't a marketer. I went to my husband who's been supportive since day one. And I told him what happened. And I said, and I, and I think I believe her. And that's when he said, don't you dare. I will not even let you go there. I think it's important to have at least one person in your life that believes in you a little bit more than you believe in yourself. And I was lucky enough for it to be my husband. And I think you would say it was yours as well. Yep. But there's a lot of women listening right now that it's not going to be their husband. It's not their spouse. And the reason for that, and I've seen it in my own community, it's not that your husband, if if you're listening right now and you're like, I don't have the spouse that's going, either I'm single or I just have a spouse that doesn't believe I should go out on my own and be my own boss. It's not that they don't believe in you. It's that they're very scared what your changes could mean for the family as a whole. And so you have to be compassionate about that, but you also have to realize your spouse might not believe in you. And this is the controversial part of my story. I always tell my students, you do it anyway, because if you don't, you're going to resent that person. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So you got to find a way to do it anyway, even if they don't fully believe in you yet. Let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, it sounds like you have an incredible husband. I'm very grateful for my own husband who, just like you said, believes in me a little bit more than I believe in myself. Like every day I have to have this like weird pep talk with him where I'm like, Same. <laughs> I'm like, I need the Anthony right now. Like, But were there people who were close to you even who maybe doubted you and maybe didn't believe in this dream that you had for yourself? Absolutely. And I knew who they would be because if I had little conversations about maybe one day I'm going to go out on my own, they would tell me all the reasons why I shouldn't. So what I learned early on is I'm only going to tell the people closest to me that I know will literally cheer me on. And I knew there were people in my life that would feel very scared about what I was doing. And so I told my mom, who literally thinks I could be an astronaut tomorrow. She believes in everything. That's amazing. Very lucky. My best friend, Gina, who believes in me and my husband. Those are the only three people that knew that in one year I planned to leave this job and go out on my own. Everybody else didn't get to know. Not everybody deserves to hear about your dreams. They can't hold it. They can't. And it's all a reflection of how they feel about themselves. They would never leave a nine to five job. So why would they ever believe that you should? And so I know that their reflection of what I'm doing is just a reflection of themselves, but I couldn't hear it. So here's one thing that was true for me. If enough people told me this is a bad idea, at that time I would have believed them. So that's why I chose not to tell them because I was too scared I was going to believe what they said. Mm. So when we're talking about courage over confidence, which I love because I think practically that's actually what happens in many situations. People don't have the track record to develop the confidence they need. I do want to play a little bit of the devil's advocate because I think that, sure, courage is great and it's absolutely important. Can't do it without courage. 
but surely that can't be it. Like, hey, I'm courageous today. I'm going to quit my job and, you know, have no money in the bank and just start a business. Yes. Like, there's got to be more, something there to support that courage, right? And when you say that, do you mean something like a plan? A plan, whether it's a savings account, conversations, like you said, with your husband to make sure, like, we've got a plan B, like, you know, is everything sort of, you know, I, I think the reason I say that is because... Uh, I remember when I made the decision to to leave full-time practice and, and pursue a small business myself, I think a lot of people had this misconception that I just like, like recklessly decided to do this and jump into it. And instead, I've now taken a lot of pains to make sure people understand like, hey, dream building isn't whimsical. It's not all just like, hey, castles in the air and, you know, things like that. There's a lot of nitty gritty details, some of the boring stuff that goes into dream building. I love it. And so, yeah, I mean, maybe if you could take us through kind of like what was a little bit of that planning process like? Absolutely. So I would say that I'm not a dreamer at all. My husband would be more the dreamer. So I have to get really realistic about how I'm going to do this. So I agree. It starts with courage. I'm going to have the courage to do this, even though I don't know if it's going to work. But then I think what's what gets backed by that is a plan. And in the book, Two Weeks Notice, I talk about a runway. Everybody needs a runway. So for me, this is what it looked like. From the day I was in that meeting and thinking, I've never been free and I want to experience that freedom. For the next six months, I started to explore what that would look like. Because I genuinely didn't think I had a skill that would equate to building a business. So I bought the books, listened to the podcast, started going to conferences, got involved in different communities that I could start learning what entrepreneurship looked like. So for the first six months, I just explored everything, kind of just to give me a sense of what this might look like. But then after that, I got really tactical. I chose my exit date. I talk about this in the book. Mm -hmm. Everybody, if you're in a nine to five job and you want to leave, we need an exit date. Schedule it to make it real. So I chose this date, put it on a post-it note, put it on a mirror where I saw it every day. And when I saw it, I would ask the question, what do I need to do today to move me closer to that date? Because I know that self-confidence comes from keeping the promises you make to yourself. This was the first really big promise I was making to myself. So I thought, come hell or high water, I'm leaving on that date. What do I need to do? So that was the first thing. The second thing is I needed to take a really good look at our finances. I was newly married at the time. Hobie, my husband, he was a general contractor when I married him, but shortly after he decided to become a firefighter, meaning I'm not going to get paid for the next year as I train to be a firefighter. So he didn't have a lot of money coming in. I was making my regular salary. Once that went away, what the heck are we going to do? So I had to get realistic. And what I tell my students is, what do you need to make for the next year to get by, enough to get by? We're not talking about you're not going on vacations. You're not living the good life yet. You do have to sacrifice that first year if you're not going to save a bunch of money before you leave. And if you have a plan to save a bunch of money, that's usually unrealistic. And it's usually an excuse and you're probably never going to leave. Like, don't tell yourself, I need two years before, two years of expenses. It's not likely going to happen. So you have to get clear about your expenses and just say, what is absolutely necessary? So I did that. And then I started to play with the numbers about, okay, what if I take a few clients on for online marketing and I consult, how much of my salary could I cover? So I did get very practical there. And then the last thing I did is I started a side hustle. 
And this is something that I think, especially a lot of people listening that don't have the support of their spouse, starting a side hustle first, which means a small business on the side that you do mornings, nights, weekends, that's a way to kind of ease into entrepreneurship. So my side hustle looked like I did social media for small businesses. For the record, the business I have today looks dramatically different. That's another thing you need to remember. What you start out with isn't necessarily what it's mm-hmm. going to look like in five years. So make the mistakes. Take, Give yourself as much grace. Experiment because nothing is set in stone in those first few years. And so I started the side hustle and that helped. But it sounds like what's absolutely critical to that is setting that date. The date was everything for me. Yes. Yeah. Because if you don't have that sort of some pressure you know, some tension, right? Then you might never actually end up starting any of those things. You might not start the side hustle. You might not start, you know, looking at your finances and getting tactical and planning or identifying what it is that you're good at. Like none of those things actually become really urgent until you have that date. Absolutely. It was everything to me. And I shared the date with the three people I mentioned so that they could keep me accountable. And as the date got closer, I would say to my husband, maybe I really don't have to quit my nine to five job. Maybe I could just continue the side hustle. And you'd say, you could do whatever you want, but that's not really what we set out to do. Like, let's remember why we're doing this. So it was good because I definitely wanted to backpedal. So you're still just kind of going back to your timeline. You're still with your nine to five, essentially, but you start this side hustle, which I think is incredible because I'm always telling people, nobody's telling you that you need to give up your job and start like brand new from scratch. Like I always recommend even just like developing a really good hobby, you know, but one of the things that I love about what you said is some of these things can become excuses. Like I'm, well, like my finances are in disarray. I don't have enough savings or, you know, I I don't know, you know, how to plan for, you know, quitting. I can't pick a date or something like that. But I think oftentimes another excuse that tends to come up is, well, I'm not good at anything. I, I don't have anything to sell. I don't, I'm not uniquely talented at anything. But you talk about in your book, I think it's like the 10% yeah. like expert, <laughs> you know, tell us a little bit about that and how you sort of arrived at, hey, I'm good enough at this where I can build something off of it. Yes. So the first thing is, if we're being really honest with ourselves, when you start to think about what you want to do, if you're going to start your own business, what would you do? If you look around and watch other people doing it, I can promise you in your silent moments when no one's listening, you look around and you think, I could do it better than he's doing it. Like, I cannot believe he's so popular. He doesn't even know X, Y, Z. Like, we don't say this publicly, but we all think that. And if you look at that guy doing it, making good money, making an impact, what he has is the 10% edge, which is he is just 10% ahead of those that he wants to serve. He's not... 5,000 miles ahead of them. He doesn't need to have extra education or things that, you know, can be excuses. I need 10 more years of education or I need this certification. No, he's 10% ahead so that he can lead and show them the way. He's gotten results and he's going to show other people how to do it. That is what you need. And when I realized, when I looked around and realized, wait a second, none of these people are better than me at what they're doing and what I want to do. I'm just going to have to get started. The only difference is they started and I haven't yet. Mm. And that, I noticed that early on. It's that action taking. And so I really do believe in the 10% edge. Now, there's one caveat that comes with it or an understanding. 
You have to have gotten results for yourself or for somebody else before you teach someone else how to get results. And I, I know that goes without saying, but you'd be surprised how many people kind of skip the part. Like don't teach anything or create a business around something where you haven't gotten results for yourself or someone else. But if you have, then it's the 10% edge. I love that. I think that's so important because, again, with this question of, well, I don't have a passion. I'm not passionate about anything. It's very relatable, but it's very connected to this idea of, well, I'm not good at anything. I don't have anything to sell or market or what value do I bring to anyone? I'm just a normal person. But all it takes is, like you said, learning a little bit more than the people around you. There's this really funny story that I heard the other day. I was at a panel for Korean American lawyers. And the woman sitting next to me, she was an immigrant from Korea and she started her career as a lawyer kind of as a second chapter in her life. She'd already had two kids that raised them and all that stuff. And somebody asked her, well, what made you decide to go into law? And she's like, well, one of my neighbors, he's a lawyer and he's pretty stupid. <laughs> and I knew he seemed to be doing pretty well. And I was like, I could do that job. If he could do that job. Yeah. <laughs> I can do it. Yeah. But to your point, I 100% agree. You got to get some results first. I remember when I was first, you know, starting the Korean vegan, I was like, well, I'm not going to do anything until I actually make a good amount of food for myself that I actually enjoy eating. I think that's fair. And sometimes that means you're doing it when no one's watching, when you're not getting the accolades, when you're not getting paid for it. That's the work you do so that you have that 10% edge. So take me through the exit, the big exodus. <laughs> yes. So it was, again, I was in that fateful meeting, realized I wanted freedom to, and to be my own boss. Six months of kind of researching, educating myself, kind of learning what I might not know. And then from there, deciding, okay, I'm going to start a business and I'm going to actually teach people how to do social media and I'm going to do their social media for small businesses. That was the business I wanted to create. So then the next six months was just getting ready for that, starting the side hustle, all of that. Then the day came, it was in June that I was going to quit my job. And I, two weeks before that, actually I think it was about a, a month before, I call the book two weeks notice, but when you're with a company for a long time, you might want to give a longer yeah. leeway. So I gave a month long notice. And I remember when I had to tell a few different bosses, including Tony, that I was leaving, I was very scared. And I was scared because I thought they could talk me into staying, mm. to be quite honest. Like I was, I was still at that point, like, oh, should I really do this? I'm making great money. I get to travel the world. This could be a big mistake. So luckily, none of them did. But here's one thing I did. I didn't tell them all about the business I was creating. I was very vague about what my plans were because one, I didn't need the opinions just yet. And two, I didn't want to be talked out of it. So I just gave them very little information. And the day I left the San Diego offices to go out on my own, the Beatles played Here Comes the Sun oh. on, my on my radio. And every time I hear that song, it takes me back to the day I left my nine to five job. But in my mind, I thought, this is a sign. This is going to be amazing. Like, watch out world, here I come. The next day I wake up and I'm looking around like, what do, what am I doing? Like, <laughs> no one's going to tell me what to do. And that's what I wanted. I don't know even what to do. So the next two years after I became my own boss were very confusing, essentially why I wrote the book, because I wanted to give people a guidebook, the guidebook I didn't have. But it's very a weird feeling. One day you are an employee, the next day you are your own boss. And that is a very 
crazy transition. Well, it's a terrifying transition. Terrifying. Yeah. I mean, you say in the beginning when you were sitting in that room with Tony Robbins and you're like, I want this freedom. I mean, they get to make the money. They There's no sky's the limit. No one's telling them what to do. And then that first day you're like, actually, I'm okay with people telling me what to do. <laughs> I would really love someone to tell me what to do right now. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, how did you find that voice to tell yourself what to do. Like, where do you find your motivation? Where do you find direction? Where do you find wisdom? And how do you quiet the self-doubt that I'm sure continued to plague you? So for me, I always feel when I'm scared, when I'm confused, when I'm fearful, I get into action. It is just my motto because I know that action creates clarity. And so for me on day one, I'm a planner. So I got out the planner. I got out the whiteboard. I love the workbook in your book. (laughs) The workbook. Like I, I really like to get it all organized. So I probably spent a little too much time organizing stuff, but that felt good to me. So I started to organize and plan and get everything together. And then I re- I knew I had to get more clients. I knew I wasn't going to make enough money with just the two clients I had when I left. And so I started to hustle and I really hustled my buns off for those first two years. And I'm not a big supporter of the hustle mentality, but I do believe in the first year or two, it's going to take more of you than you even imagine. And so I just started to hustle, get the clients I needed, planned everything out. But to answer your question, those voices in my head, you're not good enough. This isn't going to work. What are people going to think when you crash and burn? Were very, very loud. And I, in the beginning, I got a coach. And, and I've had a coach since day one. I've had different coaches. Right now, I have a business coach. I have a therapist. And I have a good, good group of girlfriends that I confide in about business all the time. Like I always have had a support system because I just know it's a very scary place in my head alone. Mm-hmm. And it, I could spiral out like that. I've dealt with depression and anxiety since I was really young. And so I knew I could go to a dark place. So I made sure I had a community around me from day one. When you did get to those dark places, because I want to explore that a little bit, because I think that sometimes we are living in a place of hustle culture being, hey, that's awesome. Let's do it. Let's work from, yeah, like let's work from 9 a.m. in the morning till midnight every day. Like that's what you have to do. If you want to be a YouTube star, if you want to start your own business, you want to open your own restaurant, you want to write a book, that's what it takes. And you should be proud of yourself for neglecting everything else in your life, right? You know, I feel like that's where we are. And as a result of that, what often happens is one of two things, I feel like, mental health gets completely oh neglected. It wasn't even talked about. Yeah, exactly. Side. Yes. Or it's the flip side of that where it's talked about in this really weird influencer sort of way. It's kind of dishonest and a little bit insincere. Like, hey, we've got to, you know, give our token speech on mental health, but not actually really mean it or adopt it. What are some of the things that you did, especially during those first two years where a lot of sacrifice was required to get where you are to ensure that your mental health stayed intact enough where you could recover from what I'm sure were a lot of things that were happening to you? A lot. So even though I was in, I was definitely hustling, I knew what was important to me. So one of the things that helped me immensely is I had my priorities straight in the sense that Having a really good marriage was everything. I got married when I was 31, so I was a little bit older than my girlfriends getting married. And so I took that very seriously. So having a good marriage was a priority. Having a connection with my family and friends, another priority. 
And then also, this has, you know, been off and on throughout my whole journey, but taking care of my health, I know that without your health, you do not have the ability to do all the things that you want to do. So I knew what was important to me. And although some of those things didn't always get my full focus, didn't always get the priority I wanted it to, I always came back to it. I always came back. And so let me give you an example. There was a point where I was probably one year in and Hobie, my husband took me aside and he said, I never see you. I feel like you're always either at some marketing conference or on the phone or doing videos. I feel like we have lost touch. And that was a huge alarm to me. It scared me, quite honestly. And so we had to have a talk like, what is this going to look like for you? Because you're right. If you work from home, I literally could work from 6 a.m. to midnight, no problem. And I wore it proudly because I'm like, look at me working so hard. And my husband's like, look at us. Our marriage is not going to work. And so having people listening to people's feedback around how you're showing up is important, but also knowing what's most important to you. That was a big one. Mm, mm, That's so true. I love this idea of coming back to things. Like I feel like some people believe that, oh, when you're eating healthy, you have to eat healthy all the time. When you're working out, you have to work out all the time. When you're paying attention to your mental health, you have to be on that ball all the time. But in my experience, it's a total fallacy. There's no like balance in the day where you're like, I will devote 20% of my time to mental health and meditation, 40% of talk about it. And then you think, what is my problem? Yeah. Like I can't live like that. That does not work for me. A lot of times it is about, Hey, I'm going to pin this and I'm going to come back to it. But pinning it is important. It is. I look at it as seasons. There are seasons in my life where my health was an absolute priority And there were other seasons where the business was struggling and I needed to figure out. And I knew there was more days I was working than I was working out. But you're right. It was always a pin. Like I knew I could always come back to it. Let's get through this, but then let's get back. I think that's exactly right. When you talk about the business struggling, whether it was in those first two years or or otherwise. A couple years ago. (laughs) Well, I think that one of the really lovely things about both your book and reading your story is how frank you are about what other people would describe as failures or mistakes. So one of the things that I read was I think one of your first online courses was sort of like not what you expected. (laughs) But how do you bounce back from that? Because there's such a temptation to say, I'm obviously not cut out for this. I sold $250 worth of online courses that I dumped thousands of dollars in. This is not for me. I'm just going to quit, go back to my old job, beg them to take me back or do something totally different. Were you in my head? (laughs) I literally said all of that. That was my first instinct. And I hate to admit that the first thing I thought was I am not cut out for this, but I did. I looked around and I assumed in my head, everyone else is doing $100,000 launches. They must be. Look at their Instagram. Yep. And so then I just believed that I was the only loser in the entire world that made $267 to be exact. I really thought I was going to make 100000 And so in that moment, I said all the things you just said. I cried for an entire week. Mm-hmm. At the end of the week, my husband had to say, we're going to need you to get in the shower. This is ridiculous. Like no more. Let's get going. So I, again, you have to have a few people in your life that will believe in you a little bit more than you believe in yourself. And so he did. And I told him, babe, I'm going to have to grovel back for my job. Mm -hmm. Like I was very convinced. And in that moment, 
he actually reminded me, why did you even do this in the first place? You took this huge, huge leap of faith. There's no way that your first failed launch is going to send you right back. But he also said, this is going to be harder than you think. Like you're going to have to change your mindset. I thought it would be easier. I genuinely thought I'd be sipping Mai Tais on the beach with my laptop in my lap. That's all I saw. And 14 years ago, that's the dream that was sold. Absolutely. And so I had to, what happened was that was a failed launch and I had to tell myself, oh, this isn't going to be easy. This is actually going to be a challenge for a while and then decide I'm up for the challenge. I changed my perspective or my expectations of what it should look like. And that first expectation that my first launch out of the gate where I didn't even have an audience should be $100,000 was wild. Why was I even thinking that? So I got a little bit more realistic. I think that's so important for people to hear. I think sometimes we get so caught up in meeting the goals we set for ourselves, and then get so depressed when we don't meet them that we actually don't take a look to ask ourselves, well, was that a sensible goal to even have in the first place? Yeah. (laughs) Like where did that even come from? It even still happens today where I'll make a, a goal for a launch and my coach will say, where did you get that number? I'm like, well, I, I just really think it would be really cool. <laughs> that if you don't hit it, that that goal was meant nothing. You just pulled it out of thin air. So I think it's so important to remember. Well, what are some of the things that you learned from that difficult launch? We'll call it that yes. first launch where it didn't meet your expectations. I'm assuming it taught you to not just recalibrate your expectations, set more realistic goals, but also how to do a launch, right? Absolutely. Here's one of the biggest things, and I talk about this in my book. I did not have an email list. And an email list is an important asset of anybody building a business, a business online or even in brick and mortar. And so I won't get into all the marketing around this, but what I will say is if you grow a business on social media, you are growing your business on rented land. Mm -hmm. At any time, Elon Musk can buy Twitter and boom, that algorithm changes. And so it's important. You have Social media is everything. We're all using it, but you own your email list. You control your email list. And so I didn't have one. And so when I put my message out there, I have a new product to buy. It was like crickets. So I learned the value of an email list in that first failed launch. I also learned that things are going to take you longer than you think. So when I launched it, I didn't even have a sales page because it Someone in India was creating it for me and it wasn't done on time and I didn't manage it well. So I went out and sold something and I didn't even have anywhere to send people. That was my fault. I didn't realize things take a little bit longer than you think they might. So now I build in that buffer in every single launch I do. So, so many different things I was able to take away and I did it again. My next launch was about $10,000. Still not a huge moneymaker, but I was doing better. And that was a, my first like vote of confidence. That is incredible that you went from $267 to $10,000. I think that there are some of us who would say, wow, that's like freaking incredible. And like how many thousands of percent <laughs> increase right. revenue did you see there? But I'm sure there was a part of you that said $10,000, that's still not $100,000. And I know so-and-so or X, Y, and Z who launched their class, they're breaking in millions of dollars. What's wrong with me? Why can't I get there? Again, how do you take that success 
and make sure that you are reinvesting that confidence in a way that makes sense and that sort of shuts up that doubting, nagging voice. I learned early on from a coach that the only measurements you should be using are against yourself. Mm. Meaning, where am I right now and where do I want to go? But there's this great book called The Gap in the Gain. And in this book, they talk about how most of us measure, I want to hit $100,000. I hit $267. i am a loser. But in the book, they talk about, I've never made a dollar online and I just made 267 bucks. Amazing. Most people will never make a dollar online. I didn't think about it back then because I didn't read the book, but I had just made money online and that was huge. But I did know enough. I went from 267 to 10,000 and I thought, okay, that's a big leap. It's not anywhere where I want to go, but if I was able to do that, what if I stuck with this, re-engineered a few things? What if I could make 20000 Now that's sounding like a lot of money. So I did start to measure my success against myself versus everyone else online. Because that 267 I measured it against what everyone else was doing. I didn't make that same mistake twice because of guidance from a coach. So mentors and coaches and therapists, they're very important on your entrepreneurial journey. I love that. When I was dealing with that when I first launched kind of our business, which is still very young, because of the space that we occupy, which is social media, you say, you know, social media is everywhere, but we literally, you know, our business is built on and on a lot of that. It was so easy for me to see exactly how well my peers were doing. I mean, when, you, when you're building a you know, brick and mortar, you don't have that kind of transparency where you literally can see the financials of your competitors. I mean, unless you're in a very publicly traded environment, you don't have access to that. Right. And if you are in a publicly traded environment, there are so many variables that could explain any type of disparities between whatever you're comparing yourself against. But for me, I can see exactly how many views so-and-so is getting, how many retweets they're getting, all of those things. And so it's become too easy to compare myself. But I love what you said about really the only metric that matters is yourself because that's exactly what I say when I'm running. Hey, like I'm not about to win the Boston Marathon anytime in my life. Maybe three lives from now I can get there. That's not about to happen. So I've never compared myself to anyone in running. It's always just like, hey, can I PR? Can I do better than my last race? Can this marathon be a little bit faster? Even if it's not a little faster, can I do something else that's better than I did last time? And I've tried to adopt that sort of mentality in my own business. It's not always easy to do, I have to say. I, I agree. It really isn't. And you make a great point. So you never expect to win the Boston Marathon in this lifetime. Not this time. (laughs) However, for some reason, when we get into business, we expect huge things from ourselves right out of the gate. When does that ever happen in life? It doesn't. But for some reason, I think because of social media, we see other people doing it and we expect to be there. And early on, a a mentor also told me, do not compare the front end of your business or the back end of your business to someone else's front end. You only see the shiny stuff on Instagram, right? Thanks to people like you, we get to see it all. And that's what I love about you. But most people are only showing us the shiny stuff. 
And so because of that, if you start comparing yourself to everyone else online, it is literally comparing apples to oranges. You're not, you have no idea what their business is like on the back end. That's so true. So then I started to say, okay, no one's really sharing like, I made this much money. Yeah, but how much did you spend? You typically don't hear a lot of those conversations. So I just stopped comparing myself to everyone else because I knew it wasn't a fair number that I was comparing against. I know my numbers. So I got really good at analytics and data so that I could literally compete against myself. And, Mm. And I like that race. So what do you have to say to people who are somewhat of naysayers of pursuing dreams or going after your dream job or going after a side hustle? And I say this in the context of what we're seeing right now. We start with a great resignation, whatever you want to call it, the silent resignation. I've seen so many different names for it. And now all the headlines are, everybody's going back to work. They made a mistake. They are regretting that they stepped away from their, you know, corporate jobs. And and now they're begging for their jobs back and, and they're not there for them anymore. There is some level of pessimism when it comes to this idea of being your own boss. What do you think it takes to not fall into that population of regret that's saying, oh man, I wish I hadn't done this? Is it just because you're more successful than they are or is it something else? Oh, I think that what do I say to those that are wanting to get out there, but they're hearing all the naysayers, Mm -hmm. right? I would say you've got to get really clear on what you want. I actually don't think entrepreneurship is necessarily for everybody. It's funny. I have a team of 20 full-time employees. One is sitting right here. She's one of my most favorite people that came there. (laughs) She is here with us. And it's a little bit awkward that here I have this book coming out saying, be your own boss, be your own boss, where I employ 20 full-time people. I also believe that not everybody in my business wants to be an entrepreneur. Mm. Some of them do, but not everyone. And so because of that, I I say, first, get really clear on what you want. Before you listen to the naysayers, before you get caught up in all the media around layoffs and people going back to their jobs or quiet quitting or all the stuff we hear, what do you want? And can you get that with your nine to five job? Will you be happy? My sister never wants to be an Mm -hmm. entrepreneur. She will always be happy in her profession as a teacher. And that is great. And so first of all, get clear on what you want. And if what you want does not fit into a nine to five job, then you cannot listen to those naysayers. You literally have to cover your ears and say, that's not part of my conversation. I'm not taking in that dialogue. And it's a discipline. The thing is, 80% of being an entrepreneur is your mindset. I could teach you the 20% of the mechanics of webinars, list building, funnels all day long, but I cannot change what's between your, your two ears. That's the stuff that personally entrepreneurs have to work on. Mm, That is so intense. That is so true. And it sounds like you have a pretty well-oiled machine of support. You know, whether it's your friends, your mentors, your therapists, certainly your husband and your family members to ensure that that mental game is always sharp. Ah, So true. I have a business coach that he's older than me and he's been in the game for a long time. And he, he feels like a father figure to me. I love him dearly. His name is Michael Hyatt. And I recently did a launch and my whole team was at my house and we were doing the launch for about a week. And he called me and he said, how's, this, how's it going? And I said, I'm, and now this is a multi-million dollar launch. So I said, I think I'm going to be a million dollars off 
but but that's okay. The team's working really hard. We're doing the best we can. I think we're going to miss it by a million, but but it's okay. I can't believe I was justifying missing a million dollars, but that's where I was in that moment. And I knew it was coming from fear. I was so afraid we couldn't hit the number and I just wanted to be okay mm. with it. And so he said, Amy, you have five days left of this launch. You literally just stepped off the field and said, it's okay. I'll be mediocre. Like you didn't even try to think of something else. And in that moment, I caught myself and I'm like, you're absolutely right. We have five days left and I could still hit this. I got scared. I, I got scared and I kind of reverted back to, it's all right. Well, I, I have a great life. I have a great business. We're going to be okay. So the why I tell the story is that a coach can push you out into the field again. And as my guide, he said, get back on the field. What can we do? And so we brainstormed a bunch of things. We came up with an idea that literally changed the entire launch. And we did hit the goal. We oh did make God. up a million dollars. But without him kind of helping me realize you just stepped off, I don't know if I would have seen it even 14 years in. And so that's why I think it's so important. Either you get friends and mentors or you pay for a coach or whatever it might be. Do not do entrepreneurship alone. It, it's, a, it's a scary place to be alone. Well, that's incredible. And I think that if you just think about it, your first launch yielded you $267. And now here you are. Yeah, I think I can afford a million dollars off my number. That is insane. Uh, like, I don't even know if there's a word to describe I that. Mm. And I have to, I'm glad you brought that up. I have to kind of gut check myself and say like, Amy, do you know how far you have come? I do have moments like $267 was my reality at one point. And now seven, eight, $9 million launches are my reality now. And so that's incredible. And at the same time, sometimes I still feel like that girl that had the $267 launch. Oh, totally. I still go through like right all the things. And I say that because I don't want anyone to think that all of that goes away when you become a millionaire or when your launches become huge. I just catch it quicker and I am able to navigate it better than I ever was before. But unfortunately, it's all still there. One of the things that you alluded to earlier was this idea that struggles don't just occur during those early years. It can happen as recently as a couple of years ago or even this year or, or any number of times. And I think there is this misconception was, oh, as long as I get past this one little hump in the beginning and I survive that, it's all just, you know, cruising after that. The trajectory, sky's the limit. I tend to believe that maybe because I want to believe that. I'm like, hey, as long as I can survive these, you know, first two years after that, it'll be cruising. How has it been? I mean, how much of a bumpy road can entrepreneurs expect throughout the entirety of their business? Incredibly bumpy. And I feel like it's my responsibility. I put out a book about be your own boss, start your own business. I need to make it really clear to those in my community. It's very, very bumpy. Every single year I've had challenges. I tell a story in the book where I almost lost my entire business because I got a partner mm -hmm. and gave this partner 50% of my business after I'd hit a million dollars almost in the business. It was doing well but I was afraid that maybe I couldn't do it alone. I, I reverted back to thinking maybe I needed someone to guide me, whatever, it might be like a boss. And so I, I almost lost the business when we decided to part ways. And that was that was like four or five years ago at a point that I thought I had, all, had it all figured out. So it never, ever goes away. But I do have this one motto and I believe it to my core. 
the worst day as an entrepreneur, nothing's going right. I almost lose my business. This is hard. The worst day as an entrepreneur is still better than the best day in a nine to five job because I know that I'm creating my own destiny, my own legacy. I'm doing it my way. It might not be going my way every day, but it is my way. And there's something powerful about that. Yeah. Taking ownership. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. And you know, when I look back and think of all the challenges I've gone through, I know it wouldn't have been this hard if I went into a nine to five job. I stayed in a nine to five job. Someone else would have helped solve those problems for me. But Every challenge I've gone through, I have become a better version of myself. I'm mm -hmm. really proud of who I am today. I've come a long way from that girl that didn't shower for a week and cried all week because she made $267. Like, I've come a long way. So the growth is a beautiful thing to see. Anyone venturing out to do this, watch yourself grow. You won't even recognize yourself. Do you feel different? How long has it been since you you fully let left? About a year and a few months. Do you feel different yet? Do you feel like a different person? Not quite yet. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, I think I, I mean, I'm getting there. I definitely felt the thing that you described the day after where I was like, I feel like the, the rug has been pulled out from me. And while it's exhilarating on the one hand, it's also terrifying and I'm just going to fall flat on my face. Yes. You know, so you felt all those things. Absolutely. But I think one of the beautiful things that continues to leap out at, at your story, from your story and from what you're describing is this reframing of success. What does it mean to be a successful person? And maybe when you first launched your course, it was making $100,000. And I feel like what you learned from that is actually that was a really poor definition of success. Oh, absolutely. How would you define success for yourself today? When I think about what success looks like for me today, it is being able to design my life and my business on my terms. That is success. It actually has nothing to do with the bottom line. I have girlfriends who make less money than me and I look at their life and I think you are so wildly successful. Mm -hmm. To me, it's not, and I don't say that flippantly. I love making lots of money, but I look at their lives and they're doing what I'm doing. They're spending their time the way they want to spend their time. They're working on the projects they genuinely enjoy working on. And they say no to the things that do not light them up. That is success. Mm -hmm. And you can do a lot of those things, even if you're not an entrepreneur. You can. That's an important part of this conversation. You can have absolute joy and excitement and passion in your life as a nine to fiver or as an entrepreneur. I think the experiences are very different, but again, you decide what do you ultimately want? And if it's not, I don't want to be my own boss, Amy, but I really do want to design a life I love. Oh, I think that's another book. That's, that's not the book I wrote, but I think that that is absolutely possible. Going back to having the courage and for you strategically kind of you know, drowning out or ignoring the voices that you knew might sort of leech that courage from you and change your mind and start making you second guess about your decision to, to make that exit date stick. Yeah. I think one of the things that I always struggled with was sort of the opposite. I didn't have the courage to listen to voices that would encourage me to leave. Oh, I wow. I would block those out, oh, literally. Wow. I remember, you know, Rich Roll is, is a huge hero of mine and in many ways a mentor to me. 
And he, you know, he was a lawyer, he was vegan, he was a long distance runner. And there were so many parts of his story that tracked with mine. And I was like, yeah, but I'm not going to be the person who leaves my firm. I can't be that person. I cannot be that person. So for many, many years, I would listen like religiously to his podcast, but I would avoid reading the end of his book. I would avoid reading the essay that he had published about that transition because I was like, I cannot afford to be inspired. I don't have the courage to be inspired in that way. And so I feel like one of the great things about your book, Two Weeks Notice, is that it sort of takes away this like the preciousness of it. Like it doesn't have to be this like cataclysmic thing. It can just be like, hey, this is the next step in my adventure. Yes, exactly. It doesn't need to be the end all be all. But you just gave me a gift because I didn't have that same experience. I walked toward the inspiration and you wanted to walk away from it. And I think there's a lot of people listening that could absolutely relate to that. So I need to remember that, that that is also someone's reality. But you're right. This book is just like, here's your guidebook. If this is something you've ever even thought about, just explore it. See what it might look like. And and that is giving people permission to just dream something different. What has it been like working with your clients, working with your students, inspiring them, but doing it in a very practical way, in a way that you wish you'd had kind of when you were starting out, whether it's through this book or through one-on-one meetings, like what is that like getting that feedback from your community? My favorite thing in the world is the stories that come out of these transformations that people have made. There was this one woman and she always thought about leaving her job, but she couldn't get the courage. She just, she couldn't do it. And then one day she was laid off and the decision was made for her. And she looked around and thought, I've always wanted to do my own thing, but I am not ready. I haven't done anything. And now it's forced upon me. And so she had to kind of start from scratch and say, okay, what exactly am I going to do? But what I love is that she didn't just say, I better get another job really quickly because I got to make money. She knew in her heart that's what she wanted to do. And she created a thriving business after she was laid off. But I always say, her name is Carol. And I say, don't be like Carol. Don't let anyone else make the decision Mm. for you. And so make sure that you make that decision and you navigate it. But I have hundreds and hundreds of stories of mainly women who have literally transitioned their lives. And my favorite are when they're in their 50s or 60s. I have one woman, her name is Anne, and she got laid off from the Gap companies. She was in in corporate when she was in her 50s. And she loved to do arts and crafts. And so when she was laid off, no one would hire her. She was at an age that she wasn't very desirable Mm. to be. It was the saddest thing. I hate hearing that. But she couldn't get a job. And so her husband said, you know all those arts and crafts you have? Maybe you should explore that a little bit more. Someone that believed in her just a little bit more than she believed in herself. So she started to dabble and she learned surface pattern design. She taught herself how to do that. And She literally created an entire business around it in her 60s. That's amazing. That's my favorite kind of stuff that I hear. It's And her motto is, it's never too late to create. So it's the stories of these women who have done amazing things. And here's the thing. I think we all have one thing in common when we go from a nine to five job to starting our own business. Whether you know it or not, you do have a capacity for zero. And this idea of the capacity for zero is you are willing to start from scratch. 
if you are willing to start from scratch, zero social media following, zero email, zero offers on the table in terms of what you're going to sell, the higher your capacity for zero, the more willingness you are to just try things. So anyone listening that they're like, I don't know if I could do this, maybe start thinking about your capacity for zero. Mm. How willing are you to start over to create something amazing and beautiful and magical for yourself? That's where I think it's at. So starting back from that very first launch, how many launches have you done now? At least 50. Oh my gosh. At least. (laughs) That's crazy. That's crazy. We talk about going from from zero. (laughs) Absolutely. That's unbelievable. You've got this beautiful book and this isn't even your first book, correct? Well, I say it's my first book. I wrote a dummies book. You know those big (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) It was Facebook marketing all in one for dummies. I do not count that one. So this is my baby. This fair enough. And you know this. Like I didn't know. I, you might not have had the same experience. This is very scary for me. I feel very naked standing here saying, here's my book, uh, all my stories, all the mistakes I've ever made and all of that. Oh my gosh, I didn't know it was so vulnerable. Oh, but that's that's what makes your book so good Ugh. is the stories. Like I was like, oh, I want to know more about this lady who was so mean to you <laughs> or like the client that yes. was like making you crazy. Oh, like, <laughs> Don't get me started. I mean, but those stories are what make this book so relatable, gripping even. Like I want to see how it all ends. And then so practical. Like I said, I love the workbook sections. It makes you do some of these exercises in writing so that you can't really like wiggle out of it mentally. I mean, there's just so much to offer in this book. I think it's going to be an amazing success. I mean, I think it's going to be amazing. I actually am surprised to hear that you consider it your first because I was like, oh, yeah, this woman has written a book. (laughs) Definitely, I consider it my first. And, you know, I have to take my ego out of it. Of course, I'm like, I want it to be a big success. I wanted to get out there in front of as many people as possible. And I do. But I also know that there's a woman in a cubicle right now that has no idea there's this whole other life possible for her. And I just, every morning I get up and I think about her. And if my book could find her, literally her whole life could open up in a new way. And I'm just going to keep focusing on that one woman I know I could change her life. That's amazing. So to kind of close this out, because I could ask you many, 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 many (laughs) questions. But to close this out, you've got your book. You've got 50 launches under your belt. You've got an incredible podcast. You've got like hundreds of thousands of followers on your social media. What's next? I think what's next for me is to be very present when people start to implement what they learn, be present for my community and help guide them as I've had all the guides do for me. Like I've talked a lot about my mentors, my guides. I want to be that for my community. So I want to take the rest of the year showing up, being present, hearing their stories and helping them navigate. And I think there's a lot of new people that will get in my world and they're going to need that extra handholding. There are people in my community that I'm the one who's going to believe in them a little bit more than they believe Mm. in themselves. They don't have anybody else. I want to be present and there for them. So I'm going to take advantage of this year that I get to do that. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. Well, thank you so much for dropping by my kitchen. Oh my gosh, this has been such a treat. Oh, I'm so glad. I love everything about you. So when you said (laughs) that I could come on your podcast, I was so excited. So thank you for having me. Uh, Well, it's been a real honor to have you here. Like I said, I could spend several more hours talking to you because I still have a lot of questions, but they're mostly for me. (laughs) 
Yes. But now we will enjoy some blueberry muffins and we'll go from there. Thank you so much. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Wow. I still can't get over the astronomical, monumental climb from Amy's first online course to her last. I don't know about you, but it makes me feel a lot better knowing that a handful of beans can indeed transform into a sprawling empire. Hopefully, today's conversation inspired you to evaluate whether you're close to your breaking point, whether you can feel the wall against your back, and if so, how you're going to pivot or break through it altogether. And with that, we're on to parting thoughts. Several weeks ago, someone I cared about treated me unfairly and with an unexpected level of cruelty. I was not ready for it, and as a result, I found myself surprised at how much it hurt me. Even though rational Joanne knew that it isn't fair, I was still ashamed of my vulnerability and by how much it was affecting me. Talking about it with Anthony caused me anxiety. I was like already pretty raw, and if he said the wrong thing unintentionally, I was afraid I would only get re-injured. Unfortunately, he found me one morning before breakfast squatting over a box of cables in the kitchen after I had randomly burst into tears. I just wish this wasn't happening, I sob into his arms. Anthony isn't the type to get overly emotional about anything. I could come home and tell him all about how so-and-so treated me unfairly at the office or how rude a commenter was on Instagram, and he'd parse through my emotions with irritating objectivity that he's no doubt quite proud of, the kind that implicitly indicts my excessiveness, which is why I am so surprised to hear him say, I am so mad, so disappointed in them. I am so mad that they would do this to you. He then launches into a tirade that warms me, makes me feel seen, and most importantly, dissolves my shame. But then he says something I truly don't expect. As your husband, I would never let you treat someone like this. So I'm also mad at their spouse. Anthony has always said he fell in love with me because of my soulfulness. And despite several attempts over the years to ascertain what exactly he means by this, it still remains too amorphous to define. That said, I know that part of it is my ability to tap into people's hearts, guard their feelings as if they were my own, share those things that remind us of how fragility can also be powerful, and in this way, always be guided by what is kind, fair, and just. Thus, to see me act in a way that was so diametrically opposed to the woman he'd fallen in love with without checking me would mean he no longer respected me, that he no longer saw me. When we are in pain, Sometimes, we can bleed beyond the contours of who we are, the outline we have spent decades etching around our bodies. And the truth is, there will be times when we're too battle-sore to do much about it. Boundaries we once deemed too sacred to cross, integrity we believed too resolute to fail, 
will begin to shudder before they collapse altogether. I bury my face into Anthony's shirt. He's wearing an old running shirt, and through it, the scent of him drifts into me. I'm reminded of how much he loves the smell of my hair, even if it's been a minute since I've showered. He once told me that he liked the way his pillowcase smelled if I shared his pillow overnight. Perhaps this is a part of how we always remember who we are. Taking care to define where Joanne ends and Anthony begins, while allowing our sense to mingle lest we forget. He hoists me up onto my feet and with a pat on my tush proclaims, it's wordle time. Thanks everyone for joining me for another episode of the Are You Ready podcast with Joanne Molinaro. I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast, and if you did, do me a favor and hit subscribe if you haven't below, and make sure to share this episode with your friends, your family, your loved ones, your colleagues, or even on social media. Otherwise, I hope you all have a wonderful and beautiful day. Mm -hmm.